The first part of this series on the Garden of Eden was the prologue. It was the background of the story. In contrast, this part is the epilogue. It's how the story at the start of Genesis spread out and changed as it was passed down from one generation to the next. It's about what those changes tell us of the world we live in. And it's the story of what's at the center of God's comments to Adam and Eve. This is Memories of Eden, Part 4. Robert Parker was born in Utah in 1866. As a teenager, he worked on ranches to help the family income, and at one of those ranches, when he was around 18 years old, he began spending time with an older worker who was also an outlaw. The evidence isn't clear, but in 1889, Parker might have taken part in his first bank robbery, and by 1896, he was in charge of his own gang. In 1899, and again in 1900, his gang blew up train cars of the Union Pacific Railroad in order to steal, in at least the first case, more than $50,000. Among the members of Parker's crew was Harry Longabow. Longabow left home when he was 15 and was in prison for stealing a horse within a couple of years. Eventually, he developed a reputation as the fastest gun and the best shot of the crew. And when Parker's main partner was sent to prison in 1899, the two teamed up. They went first to New York and then to South America, where, after running a ranch for a few years, they went back to robbing banks, trains, and other things. The end of the tale gets a little fuzzy, but the usual story is that the two of them were killed by soldiers in Bolivia in 1909. We don't know the end of the story for sure, but there's a decent chance you've heard it. Though probably not as the story of Robert Parker and Harry Longabow. They didn't usually go by those names. Robert Parker once worked for a butcher and got the nickname Butch. And that older outlaw he met on a ranch in Utah, that was Mike Cassidy. As for his partner, Harry Longabow was nicknamed after the town where he spent a year and a half in jail when he was about 17, the town of Sundance, Wyoming. In the hundred or so years since Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid were alive, they haven't quite become folk heroes. But you do see people mention how there's no evidence that either of them killed anyone until the shootout at the end of their lives, or there might be references to a Robin Hood quality of giving to the poor. They haven't quite become folk heroes, but you see this willingness to put a positive spin on someone who was clearly wrong. And that path of criminals becoming heroes, of villains becoming legends, you can find this at the start of history too. If you look through the folklore and mythology and legends from around the world, you hear pieces of the story from Genesis, elements that are similar, but with a twist. Start with what people remember about what the world used to be like. For instance, in the description in Genesis, the Garden of Eden has four rivers flowing out of it. In Egypt, they drew two or four rivers flowing out of the mouth of a god who represented the cosmic abyss. In Assyria, there's the image of a godlike figure with four rivers flowing out from him, going in four directions. In Scandinavia, they tell about the world beginning with four rivers of milk flowing from a cow. And in China, one of their ancient pictograms that means garden also means beginning and father. 
The picture shows a square that's split into quadrants, with one author suggesting it represents four rivers flowing out from the center of a garden. And in some versions of that image, there's a symbol that might represent God in the center of the square. You can see these parallels between what Genesis says and what you find in stories elsewhere around the world. In Genesis, you get this description of a world that was perfect. And Ovid, a Roman poet from around 2,000 years ago, talks about the same thing. He describes a first golden age when everything was at peace and when the ground grew food all on its own. In Samaria, one of the earliest cultures of Mesopotamia, they talk about a lost paradise. In a poem, they wrote of it as where, quote, The lion does not kill. The wolf does not seize the lamb. The wild dog, devourer of kids, is unknown. He whose eyes hurt does not say, my eyes hurt. He whose head aches does not say, my head aches, end quote. There are these parallels to a perfect world that once existed, but the parallels you find go deeper into the story. Earlier, I talked about the horned serpent and the Uctena from North America, the feathered serpents from Central America, and the Naga from India, from Hinduism. But those stories were mostly the description and trying to figure out what the snake in Eden might have looked like. But the parallels don't stop there. In the Garden of Eden, this snake is associated with a tree, and you find that as well. In ancient Mesopotamia, there was a tree god who was represented as a serpent that could take human form. The symbol for Lower Egypt was a cobra wrapped around a papyrus stem. Greek mythology has those stories of the dragon named Ladon that guarded a tree of golden apples in the Garden of the Hesperides. And in Scandinavia, along with that cow making four rivers of milk, they also describe an evil snake that surrounds the world, and a great tree that is a source of life and supports the universe that has a snake gnawing at its roots. In Eden, the snake was able to talk and reason with Eve, and you find stories that have that similarity. In Greece and Rome, until the 5th century BC, dragons, really just large snakes, were thought to be either supernatural or controlled by a supernatural power. And in Egyptian mythology, they thought animals could somehow communicate with humans and that such an ability was especially true of snakes. And then there are the stories that make references to forbidden food. In Central America, people who lived on the coast of Nicaragua talk about two brothers who went fishing. They caught a fish that one brother wanted to eat and the other one thought they shouldn't. The one who ate the fish turned into a giant boa constrictor who climbed up and lived in a tree. North of there, the Creek Indians have stories that tell about the origins of tie snakes and the horned serpents. There are different versions, but in general the stories say two men were traveling or hunting, and one of them decided to eat some sort of strange or forbidden food. It was a food that in the stories is usually found in a hollow tree or in a stump. And overnight, the man, or sometimes woman, who ate the food turns into a snake. And then from there, you can see ideas of temptation and disobedience that show up in the stories from these other cultures as well. I've talked about it before, but there's that ancient Babylonian cylinder of a man and a woman sitting on two sides of a date palm with fruit hanging down around them and a snake standing on its tail and whispering in the woman's ear. In Hinduism, the Nagas, the snakes with gems in their heads, are believed to have deadly venom 
but also some sort of elixir of life and immortality. And paralleling Lucifer offering Eve some hidden wisdom, the Naga was also supposedly a guardian of hidden treasure. And then there's China again. In China, in the pictograms I mentioned earlier, there are pictures that show a serpent with two trees as a symbol for do not. There's a picture of a woman facing one tree with her back to another one that means covet. And there's the picture of two mouths next to a tree that means to die, lose, ruin, perish. And then you get the ending of the story from Genesis. Remember the cherubim that were placed at the entrance to the garden after Adam and Eve left? Throughout the Middle East, there are statues and carvings of creatures that stood at the entrances to palaces and temples. In Babylon, you had intercessors, who appeared as human-headed bulls and lions. In Egypt, there was the Sphinx, an animal with a human head and a lion's body that was considered wise, even all-knowing. And it's found in the artwork of temples as if it was supposed to protect the place. The Hittites, who used to live in what is today Turkey, had a griffin. It was an animal with wings, an eagle's head, and a lion's body. And you find images of it in tombs and sanctuaries. And this griffin is usually seated. It's less like an attacker and more like the guard of some holy place. In Assyria, they carved statues of these giant bulls that had wings and a human head. And they placed them next to gates to act as guardians. They called them Shedu or Lamasu or Caribou, a word that comes pretty close to cherubim. And then if you go back to that image of the Assyrian godlike figure who produced the four rivers that I mentioned a moment ago, that image also shows him surrounded by two trees with a winged guard standing next to each tree. Overall, there's this common Middle Eastern belief in something whose job it was to guard the sanctuaries of the gods and to block any intruders. In Babylon, there's an artifact from the 12th century BC that shows a netherworld city with tall gates guarded by a serpent-like creature. And if you go read the Epic of Gilgamesh, while he's searching for immortality, Gilgamesh comes upon some mountains that have guards. And the story says, quote, At its gate the scorpions stand guard, half man and half dragon. Their glory is terrifying. Their stare strikes death into men. Their shimmering halo sweeps the mountains that guard the rising sun. End quote. That sounds like what you might expect to see at the entrance to the Garden of Eden. And when the scorpion guards do let Gilgamesh pass in the story, he walks through a long, dark tunnel and comes out into a beautiful garden filled with trees and gems. Finally, at the end of the epic, Gilgamesh finds the plant that will give him immortality and a snake steals it away. Can you see the parallels? All around the world, there are these examples. In Genesis, Eve was made from Adam's rib. In Samaria, one of their goddesses was Ninti, a name meaning Lady of the Rib. In Egypt, they believed in a demon of chaos who looked like a serpent, attacked the sun god, and was the embodiment of evil. And the pyramid texts that were supposed to help the pharaohs on their trip to the afterlife those include several dozen spells and curses on snakes that might interfere with the trip. If you go to India, Indra, the king of the gods in Hindu mythology, is said to have been a Naga chief who used to rule in paradise 
but came back to the earth to be in charge of men who had human heads but serpents' tails. In Mesopotamia, in the Adapa epic, when Adapa is offered the food of life, one of the palace guards is snake-like, or followed by horned serpents, and he's a guardian of demons. And then finally, in North America, the Lenape Indians from Delaware say the world was once perfect until it was undermined by a great magician serpent. All around the world, there are these examples, from Scandinavia to North and Central America, to Australia, China, and Japan, to Africa, to the Middle East. There are all these stories with parallels to what you find in Genesis, all these elements that are so similar. There are differences, but the similarities in these stories suggest that they're all remembering the same history. These people spread out all around the world are remembering something that really happened. The stories have shifted, the details are distorted, but there are so many parts that seem akin to one another. Sometimes you see the suggestion that Genesis is just a copy of these other stories from Mesopotamia. But that still doesn't explain the stories from China and Siberia and Nicaragua. Where do those similarities come from? You can argue they were invented independently and maybe bring up examples of myths from around the world that don't appear to have much similarity. But explaining how people who aren't in contact with one another invent original stories is much easier than trying to explain how different people invent stories that are so much alike without having contact with one another. And the fact that these stories show up in so many places hints at the idea that they did have contact with one another, that these weren't copies. These were people remembering something that had been passed down to them. They were writing down what they recalled of some common history, some memory of where they came from. And that brings me to the differences. Because even with all these similarities, there are differences in these stories, and there are differences that matter. The story in Genesis tells of a serpent who lied to humans and robbed them of eternal life. But in some of these stories, the snakes aren't a symbol of death and evil. They often represent something else entirely. The stories tell of serpents that are sources of wisdom and immortality. The Aztec feathered serpent god was, among other things, the god of learning. In North America, the snakes represented wisdom and resurrection. In Australia, serpents were in charge of the natural world. In China and Japan, dragons are symbols of good luck and health and are considered benevolent. In Egypt and Greece, there's a symbol of a snake eating its own tail, and the symbol is associated with living forever. And lest you think this is all ancient, we've held on to some of that symbolism. Even today, the logos for the World Health Organization, the American Medical Association, and the icons you see on ambulances have the symbol of a serpent winding around a post. It's something that refers back to Asclepius, the doctor or god of healing from ancient Greece, who is shown with a staff that had a serpent coiled around it. In these stories, snakes come to represent positive things, including taking on the role of a god. You can see this sort of thing in Babylon. In the early 1900s, a team of German archaeologists excavated the ruins of the Ishtar Gate. They collected glazed bricks that they found, and they reassembled those bricks inside the Pergamon Museum in Berlin. Some of the bricks form these mosaics of animals, and they include the image of one known as a snake dragon. 
It has four legs, talons on its back feet, a long tail, scales on its body, and a forked tongue flicking out of its mouth. The animal was a representation of Marduk, the chief god of the city. In Genesis, the snake was the villain, but in Babylon, they represented their patron god as some sort of a beautiful serpent. The examples don't stop there. In China, the first emperor was a godlike being with a serpent's body who taught people how to cook and hunt and fish. In West Africa, people trace the creation of the world to a male-female creator riding on the back or maybe in the mouth of a rainbow serpent. It's a story that gives the snake a key role in how the world was made. People who tell the story claim there was an even earlier god, but they don't recognize any relationship between it and the beginning of the earth. In these stories, you get this picture where people see the snake as something good, sometimes even taking over God's role in creation. And as the snake's standing went up, God's standing went down, because the gods of these cultures are often something petty and cruel. In Egypt, the gods fight with one another for control of the world. In Babylon, at one point, the king of the gods decides to destroy all humans because they make too much noise and are disturbing his rest. In Greek mythology, the Trojan War happens in part because of a contest between self-absorbed gods. Rather than being a perfect and loving creator, these stories turn God into something selfish and uncaring. And finally, after confusing the hero and the villain, some of these stories let humans off the hook. There are stories where death comes as a punishment, but there are also examples where humans did nothing wrong. In Babylon, humans were made from evil material, so it made sense that they would be evil. In Africa, there are stories about how man was originally meant to live forever, but the messenger bringing the promise of life was delayed, and the one bringing death got there first. Some myths say that man was punished with death due to disobedience, but others say that man had to choose between two bundles, with one containing life and the other death, and man chose death by mistake. In one case, death didn't originally exist in the world, and it only came because the creator thought things would get too crowded otherwise. And that Sumerian paradise I mentioned earlier, it wasn't something humans lost because of disobedience. That was a place meant only for the gods. Can you see how up and down get reversed? How the story gets confused? Can you see how humans figured out how to blame God for their own mistakes? In so many of these examples, things get turned around. But there are places where little pieces of the truth still come through. I talked about the Garden of the Hesperides from Greek mythology earlier, but there's another story from Greek lore that's much more famous. And it's a story that scholars have viewed as a possible reference to Adam and Eve. The story comes from Hesiod, a Greek poet, and the version we have of it is about 2,700 years old. In the story, after Prometheus steals fire from the gods and gives it to humans, Zeus, the king of the gods, wants revenge. So he has someone gather up some soil to create the first woman. Zeus gives the woman all kinds of gifts, all kinds of presents, including a jar with a lid. When Erasmus translated the story during the 1500s, that jar became a box. It was a box that Pandora opened, releasing all kinds of evil into the world. 
In the Greek myth, the story ends with just one thing left in the box. Hope. And this might be one place where the story from Genesis came through all right. Because that's part of the message that Genesis gives us. We don't know where Moses got the material that he used in the story in Genesis. One suggestion is that he was an editor, that he combined stories that were already around and had been passed down to him. And I like to think that if that's true, some of those stories might have been passed down from Adam. Some of the story we get of the Garden of Eden might be Adam's autobiography. And if that's the case, think about the story we have. Think about the story that Adam passed down. Like the Babylonian stories, Adam could blame God. But this story doesn't do that. Adam doesn't claim he wasn't warned about the tree. He doesn't claim he had no choice. Adam's story could be full of bitterness. It could be a story that paints God as someone mean and cruel, a story that blames him for pain and suffering. But if this is Adam's autobiography, Adam doesn't do that either. In spite of the tragic ending, the message Genesis gives us is that God is a good God. And you can see that in how the story is told. When we write stories today, we put the climax at the end. All the excitement builds up to the point right before the story is over. That's not necessarily how things have always been done. In the Bible, you get a story structure that often puts the most important point in the middle. And then there are these parallel themes leading up to and away from that high point. This type of structure is called a chiasm, and you can see this pattern in the story from Ezekiel of the fall of Lucifer that I talked about a few episodes ago. In that story, it first describes how wonderful heaven was and the role Lucifer played there, and everything works up to this point where suddenly Lucifer turns from being a perfect angel into a sinful one. And then the second half of the story is a reverse, because it describes Lucifer's fall and his banishment from heaven. In the Bible, sometimes the high point comes in the middle. And in the story of the creation of Adam and Eve and the temptation and sin and consequences, people see one of these structures with the turning point coming in the middle when Adam and Eve eat from the tree. But there also might be a smaller one in the part of the story where God comes and talks to them after they eat. When God comes to the garden, he first talks to Adam, then to Eve, then to the serpent, then to Eve again, and then finishes with Adam. At the center of that is what God says to the serpent. That's the part of the story where God tells the snake that it would strike at man's heel, but Eve's offspring would crush its head. And I wonder if the story happened that way to highlight the promise. I wonder if God talked in that order, or Adam passed it down that way, or Moses wrote it in Genesis in that pattern, in order to make the hope stand out to make sure God's love and promise wasn't lost as the story passed down through history from one generation to the next. The story of the Garden of Eden, of Adam and Eve's fall, it sets the stage for the whole Bible. It sets up two sides in a conflict, with humans in the middle trying to pick which side to follow. One side follows God, and in the Bible, at one point God gives us his name. And since a name and a character are often the same thing in the Bible, what God really does is describe himself. He says he is merciful and gracious, loving and faithful, one who forgives and judges with justice. That's one side of the war. One side follows God. 
By comparison, the other side follows Lucifer, the angel who was expelled from heaven. And remember, Lucifer's name was actually a description too. It meant light bearer. But that name was only used before he left heaven. As he rebelled against God, and as he tries to make humans turn against God too, he gets a different name. Now he's known as Satan. It means the adversary. And if you wonder why in so many stories the snake is seen as a source of wisdom or knowledge or learning or immortality, it's because that adversary has twisted and manipulated what people remember. Satan's turned himself into the hero and God into the villain. It's just another version of the same lie he told Eve in the Garden of Eden. But try as he might, he hasn't been able to destroy the true story. He's only been able to bury it. Because if you look all around the world, there are these memories of Eden. And among those memories, there's one that sets the record straight. Because the version in Genesis makes the message clear. It tells us that the history of the world is the story of an adversary who wants humans to die. And it gives us the memory of a loving and merciful God who wants to save his friends from death. To Adam and Eve, God made a promise that someday the adversary would be crushed. But as they left the garden, as the pathway behind them was blocked, that day was still a long time in the future. All they had with them was the story of what had happened and their faith that God would keep his word. And though they didn't know it yet, they needed all the hope they could get because they were about to learn what it was like to live in a world of death. This is the final episode about the Garden of Eden. When I started, I thought this was going to be one long episode, and then it turned into four separate parts. But taking some time on this part of history is good, because nothing else that happens in the rest of the Bible makes sense without the background from this story as a foundation. That said, in the next episode, there's an argument over what it means to follow God's commands. And you might be surprised at where else we get some of this part of history. Until then, if you're curious about any of the sources I used, WiderBible.com has references, links, and show notes with extra information and details that didn't fit into the podcast. The website also has a link for asking questions and a place to subscribe so you can get updates when something new comes out. I'm Adam Schull. Thanks for listening.